God gives us truth not simply so that we understand what's right, what's accurate, but he gives us truth to change us, to change us from what we are to what he wants us to be. And he actually wants more for you than you even desire for yourself. All of his desires for you are perfect. They're righteous, they're true, they're, they're informed and even shaped by his love, his grace, his mercy. Every attribute of God, everything that makes him God actually comes to bear upon your soul and mine as he changes us from what we are to what he wants us to be. We're actually gonna see that today in, in Mark's gospel as we enter the ninth chapter. Um, but wow, I, I'm just so thankful we can gather and sing songs and hymns uh, like we've done. This is, this is a gift from God. Well, as we open our Bibles this morning, I would invite you to um, pray with me first of all. We're gonna go to Mark 9. You can go ahead and turn there, but... Uh, we are going to pause for a moment here and just pray. We need God's help, as always, and let's ask him for that help. Father, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you, Lord God, for the presence of the Spirit with us. And we are dependent upon him in ways that we can't even fully understand. We're so proud and self-sufficient in our thinking that even as we open your word, we sometimes operate under the delusion that if we just exercise our intellect enough, we'll get it. But this truth is spiritually discerned. And if you were to withdraw the Holy Spirit from us, we would never really understand what this word is about. But thank you that in your kindness to us, you have promised the presence of the Spirit. You have promised that as we seek you, we will find you if we search for you with all our hearts. And so as we search for you this morning, and as you send the Holy Spirit to be our instructor, to illuminate our minds, to empower our wills, oh, how we pray that we would experience the very kind of transfiguration, transformation that your word tells us of. I'm mindful that there are some today who are so weary and worn out with life that they have little to no strength left in their bodies. But I pray that you would first invigorate their souls, put their minds at rest and bring peace into their hearts and let their souls be refreshed and renewed. And as their souls are experiencing that life-giving work of Jesus Christ by His Spirit, we pray that even their physical bodies would be energized. Others sorrow, carry a weight of grief upon their souls. They don't know what to do with. But we ask that as they see the Lord Jesus Christ revealed in His glory, his power, his majesty, his love for them, that their grief would be eased and that their sorrow would even find a place to rest itself in you because you are the God of life 
of hope, of resurrection. And for those who continue to seek you and experience confusion and doubt or fear or turmoil related to the, the truth of the gospel, let this be a day where, there's, where those fears and doubts are laid to rest and they truly see Jesus as he is. So to see him as he is, Father, we, we need spiritual eyes to hear his voice. We need spiritual ears. So give us that sight and that hearing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm always intrigued when I see news reports, and a photo, this is a photograph that has been circulating around various websites and news sources and some reporting it. Any of you see this? I think it came out in March. A few, few hands have gone up. Italian artist Alfredo Labruto was able to photograph this beautiful shot. And you can see why he, and then as it went viral, people said, it looks like Jesus. It looks like Jesus. And he even wrote, I was enchanted by the view. I don't often share pictures on social media, but when I took this one, I instantly felt like I wanted other people to see because it was so beautiful. And as we might expect, the photo did, in fact, immediately uh, go viral. Carmen, you understand what that's about, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> Lobruto happened to be in the right place as the sun broke through the, the clouds, and it, it is quite a beautiful photograph. But I've, I've also read a number of people adding more spiritual significance to this than really is there, right? And we can appreciate the sentiment in our hearts, and I'll include myself in that as we look at something and say, wow, that is spectacular. But there really isn't substantial and eternal spiritual significance there. That's not actually Jesus, lest anyone here wonder what I think about it. The truth is that to see Jesus as he is, not as we imagine him to be, whether we might imagine it in a sunset or even in some theology book or the stories of the ages, but to see Jesus as he is, is life-altering, life-changing. It is transformational. Thirty years after the particular story we're going to read and study through today in Mark 9, thirty years after the Lord Jesus died, rose again, and ascended, Peter was continuing his work of preaching, of evangelizing, of helping to establish churches in that Middle Eastern and Mediterranean area. But the persecution that had begun to unfold, first in Jerusalem, had now spread into the Roman Empire, and Nero, that tyrant and wicked Roman emperor, had declared war, as it were, on believers. And Peter sat in this very jail cell, we believe. This is a jail that is still... Uh, has recently undergone some kind of renovation, apparently, but tourists flock there. Kristen and I didn't, were in Rome for just a brief period. We had a layover as we were flying to visit some mission partners a number of years ago in Albania, and uh, we, we stood at the outside of this very location, but didn't have the opportunity to go in. 
And I've thought to myself often of how men like Peter could endure horrific conditions because even going into a, a, a jail cell like that today is oppressive, but in those days it would have been filthy. It was designed to cause people to suffer. And yet from that jail cell, three decades beyond the particular incident and story that, that we're going to work through today, Peter wrote of it as a personally transformational moment, so powerful in his life that it sustained him through years of very difficult ministry, of suffering, of opposition, of frustration and failure. And he wrote in such a way to encourage the faith of others who also were struggling. You know, whether you were living in Rome in that particular time or just out in the extended kingdom to know that the, that the ruler, the emperor at the top had declared open season on you would have caused you to think, is this really worth believing? Is this Jesus really worth serving? And many believers, like Peter, were suffering as they followed Christ. They were experiencing the realities of what we looked at just last week, Christ calling us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and follow Him. And remember last week, I used that little phrase, Jesus is inviting us into a death march. Well, that was very real for Peter. It was very real for believers. And he wrote two letters to the early church. And in the second letter, which we read and know by the title 2 Peter, he wrote in, verse, uh, in chapter 1, verse 16, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. You can imagine how that kind of cultural pressure Life and death pressure coming to bear upon saints would cause some of them to say, is Jesus Christ really who Peter and others are saying he is? Is it really worth the cost of my life or my estate or my family business or my marriage? Is it really worth denying myself the basic necessities of life? Is it really worth taking up a cross and following this Jesus? And Peter writes with all earnestness, we are not following cleverly devised myths. But he writes as an eyewitness. And then he says, For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So why do I bring up Peter's second letter when we're studying the Gospel of Mark? Because I want you to feel some of the weight of this particular account. Because when you read Peter's letter written 30 years later, he still writes with the profound weight and glory and majesty of this moment in his soul. We can't go to that mountaintop and see Jesus as Mark will describe him or even as Peter describes him, but we can open this word together and believe it. And the, the astonishing thing to me as Peter continues through uh, that account, in 2 Peter 1.19 he writes, and we have the prophetic word made uh, more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. 
There's an aspect of his, of his letter where he is saying, what you hold in your hands is actually a greater revelation than what I witnessed with James and John on the top of that mountain we refer to as the Mount of Transfiguration. And I'm humbled by that because I think to myself, you know, I don't value this word the way Peter valued it. So let's go back to Mark's gospel and, and work our way through this remarkable account and don't forget the context in which Mark is presenting this to us. Remember, Jesus has just said to his followers, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And now for the encouragement of, these, of those first disciples who are counting the cost, because Jesus is not only saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, suffer, be rejected, die, and rise again, but if you follow me, there's also a cross for you to bear. And it's true for us today. To follow Jesus will cost you something. But count the cost in this context. Okay, so Mark 9, verse 1. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified." And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. A remarkable portion of Scripture for us. As you can see, I want to reduce this to what I think are just the simplest and most important parts of this brief passage. And the first is this, we must see Jesus as he is if we're going to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. This has been a, a recurring theme. It's why Jesus said to his disciples just in a, a few uh, verses before this in chapter 8, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? What you believe about Jesus will shape your worship to, of him and it will shape your service to him. So here, verse 2, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. Why he left the other nine behind, we do not know, but these three men are privileged uh, to experience something. And he leads them up on a high mountain, Mark writes. In the Gospels, mountains figure prominently in Jesus' ministry. There's, there's discussion, because there's a lot of uncertainty as to which mountain it is, uh, there's a mountain closer to the Sea of Galilee that if we were to travel to Israel, we would probably stop there as tourists, and they would say, this is the Mount of Transfiguration. The problem is it's not really a high mountain. And so what you see in the distance there is Mount Hermon, and it's to the north, and it's spectacular. Now, I've never traveled there, but just looking at the, the, the photographs of it and, and understanding a little bit of the geography, this actually makes a little more sense. And if you care for this kind of detail, going back into chapter 8, the whole conversation Jesus had with his disciples, who do people say that I am, but who do you say that I am? Well, that's in a very northern part of Israel. And they could have traveled in six days, easily made it to the, the other mountain, the, the tourist spot that I was telling you about, but they could have also traveled to this place. Nonetheless, 
The big point is not the particular location this happened, but look at the end of verse 2. He was transfigured before them. How so? Well, Mark describes that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them, as no launderer uh, could, could make them shine and be radiant in this particular way. It's interesting that if you compare this account with Matthew and Luke, you'll see they are almost identical, yet Matthew chooses a little different description and says not only that Jesus was transfigured before them, but his face shone like the sun. Luke says that as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. All of them describe his attire. Mark saying his clothes became radiant. Matthew saying that his, his clothes became white as light, and Luke, in a very descriptive way, says his clothing became dazzling white, or that that he says, literally, it was flashing like lightning, or like unto a lightning flash. Now, what are the disciples experiencing at this moment? Well, this is a glimpse, just a little foretaste, if you will, of the full Course, full expression of kingdom power and glory that Jesus has just said is coming in the future, the end of chapter 8. The Son of Man who will suffer and be rejected and die and rise again. Jesus had said at the end of chapter 8, He will come in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. These disciples need to see Jesus as He is. And again, not as others imagine him to be. And we've looked in recent weeks at how the Pharisees had a particular perspective on Jesus, and it was inaccurate. Herod had a particular perspective on Jesus as a a reincarnated form of John the Baptist. That's not accurate. Even Peter himself, after his great confession, you are the Christ, which is accurate, he had rebuked Jesus when Jesus said, I'm going to die and rise again. And he says, no, Lord, remember he pulls him aside as if he has a better plan for Jesus. Jesus will not allow you and me to just impose our ideas, either about his person or his plan. He is who he is. And these disciples need to see him as he is. And so do we. This term for transfiguration is is used in only about four places in the New Testament. And here's one of those occurrences. And Paul, in writing to believers at the church at Corinth, says to them, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, there's the term, or transfigured into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. My question is, how do we behold the glory of God? How do we behold the glory of God? this Jesus who is Lord. Because if that's the means of our own transfiguration, I want to figure that out. Because I don't want to stay the way I am. And you could start with my wife and say, and she would say, yeah, he really needs to change. And then my kids. And and it's the same for you. Nobody here is perfect. And I hope you're not content in one respect with what you are at this moment. God's not content with that. We can't even begin to fathom 
the woe that sin has brought into this world. We can't even begin to fathom what we might be if we were not by nature sinners. But God knows exactly what you and I can and should be. And there's actually a transfiguration that is underway. And what Paul is indicating is that as we look upon Jesus, we actually slowly, steadily, incrementally are being changed, transfigured. Now, if you could read that full passage, what you would see is is we see Christ in his word. That's why opening this book is, is so absolutely vital to you and to me. We read it. You come to this place. We preach it. We teach it. We pray it. We sing it. And, and that's because this is part of the means of our personal transfiguration. I love the words of the author and Bible commentator David Garland. He writes, It is a moral axiom that we become like the gods we serve. In beholding the true glory of the Lord reflected in Christ, our minds become transformed. And we'll come to Romans 12, verse 2. That's the reference cited there in this quotation. But hang on for a few more minutes. Our minds become transformed so that we are not conformed to this world and its perceptions and values, but conformed to Christ and the paradoxical paradoxical pattern of His suffering and resurrection. And that's the part so many of us want to avoid. That's what scares us about hearing Jesus say, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. But if that's part of what is necessary to become like him, to be transformed, transfigured into his image, don't you by faith as I do, even though sometimes my faith is weak, I falter, I'm not totally sure, but there's part of me that says, oh, I do want that, bring it on. You know, this is part of the reason that Kevin chooses the, the psalms and hymns and, and spiritual songs that we sing, we, we are looking for things that are scripturally true, that are accurate according to the word of God. We're not looking for things that just kind of give us a sentimental feeling about God. That, that would be a musical form of that photograph that I put up right at the outset. It, it gives you a vague impression of Jesus, but that's not transformational. We need the truth about Jesus, truth from his word that tells us he is king of kings, lord of lords, that, that sings his titles, that, that points us to his names, his particular work of dying and rising again, that promises his soon return. That's why we read passages as we did in this service, Psalm 104 and Revelation 1. It reminds us of how great and glorious Jesus is. The problem is most of us wake up every day thinking, I'm the great one. You say, no, not me. Yes, you and me. That's why your first thought is, what will I have for breakfast? Or what kind of coffee will I make? Or very few of us wake up saying, Oh, how can I serve and bless the other people around me today? I wonder if they're waking up really tired. I wonder if I could fix breakfast for, you know, the the members of my household that would fuel them for the day and bring blessing. Now, Now, I'm not saying you never have any of those thoughts, but those aren't typically your first waking thoughts. Some of you get there by the grace of God. No, your default mode like mine is... I'm the center of the universe. 
So if I'm hungry, I'm going to find something to eat. If I'm tired, I'm going to go to sleep. If I'm you know, experiencing some kind of discomfort, I'm going to put more clothes on if I'm cold, or I'm going to turn the AC down if I'm hot. I mean, we kind of live at the center of our own little universe. And we need to come into a, a, a setting like this. We need to be in places, even privately, where we are reminded continually Jesus is great. We're in danger every day of either forgetting Jesus outright or just imagining to be something that we think he ought to be, we want him to be, but it's not an accurate thought of what he is. And then you layer in how the culture just shouts at us. Tells you that politics, the stock market, social justice, I mean, it's just like, all these big headlines. And you know what? If, if, if that's the dominating voice or audio, if you will, of your, of your life, you will lose sight of the fact that Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. You see, this, this eyewitness testimony that we're reading this morning, the experience that Peter had is a reminder that Jesus Christ is the great reality in the universe. So some of you are already worked up about this next presidential campaign. Take a breath. King Jesus rules. But I fear, yeah, yeah, we all do. Peter feared what Nero would do. And you know, Peter was actually crucified and, and at that point apparently said, I'm not worthy to be crucified as my Lord was. Turn me upside down. That's where, that's where it was leading. And people that he's writing to are literally forfeiting life and business and income and watching other family members and friends be put to death. And Peter is saying, oh, serve Jesus with all that you are. He's greater than you can imagine. If we are to deny ourselves, take up our crosses and follow him, we must see him as he is. Now go back to the text. There appeared to them, verse 4 says, Elijah with Moses. We won't spend a lot of time here, but can I just give you a little brief summary? These two probably stand at the head of the prophetic class, if you will. There's no greater prophet in Israel than the lawgiver Moses in one respect, but Elijah is also representative of the prophets who would come, both of them great and extraordinary in their, in their own right. Both of them actually were on Mount Sinai and experienced the presence of God in very unique ways. Maybe that's why the Lord chose to send them to speak with Jesus at this particular point. At the end of the day, we don't really know. The prophet Malachi speaks of Moses and Elijah within three verses of each other. At the close of Malachi, which is the last uh, book in the Old Testament, the prophet writes in chapter 4, verse 4, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of, of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So, so there's an interesting little sidebar where Moses and Elijah appear in a prophetic text Similarly, we, we don't know exactly why it's just these two, but notice this. Look again at the text, verse 4. They were talking with Jesus. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what they were talking about, but if you go to Luke's account of the transfiguration, he says in chapter 9, verse 30 of his gospel, 
Two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his, that is Jesus, departure, which was about to accomplish Uh, to be accomplished at Jerusalem. And the word that uh, Luke uses for departure is actually very close to that word exodus that you know of. So they're, they're talking together about the great mission that Jesus is on, the very thing he's been prophesying to the disciples, saying, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm gonna suffer, die, and rise again there. And they speak of this departure which will be accomplished. It will be fulfilled. I'd love to hear the recording of that conversation one day, and maybe God will give us that privilege when we get to heaven one day. Or I'll just ask Moses straight up, hey, tell me, what? And then go to Elijah. Tell me, and then go to the Lord. Tell us about that conversation. But this brings us to the second big point. We must hear Jesus as he speaks. Look at verse five. And Jesus said to, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Sweet Peter. So many of us relate to him, don't we? You love him. You can imagine, you've just seen the unveiled glory of the Savior you've been walking with. You know him and believe him to be the Christ, but you never imagined that he would be like this. I mean, what's happening to him physically? You can only imagine the effect upon his his eyes, his pupils. The radiant light, the glory of, of God has come down. A cloud envelops them. He's looking at Moses and Elijah, overhearing some parts of this conversation. Yeah, terrified? That's that's understatement. But because he is a, I think he's probably a verbal processor, like some of you, right? You just have to say it, and uh, nobody ever has to wonder what you're thinking because it's just going to come out of your mouth, and here he is. And, you know, we should give him credit because his suggestion that they build these, set up these tents, these aren't like camping tents. This would be like the, the Old Testament tabernacle. He's basically saying, let's establish a memorial here because we are in the presence of the most holy God. So it's a sweet suggestion, well-intentioned, but it is misguided. And you know, I love the thought, I'm borrowing from John's gospel, but God is not seeking to build a new tabernacle or a new holy site that people could come to and commemorate Jesus. Do you remember what John said in his gospel, chapter 1? That the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's the glory of gospel, is that the God of eternity became a man and made his dwelling with us, that we might be rescued out of our sin, delivered from this present darkness, transfigured as we behold him in his glory. Verse 7 of, of Mark 9 says, A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. And now for the second time. The Father speaks from heaven. The first was at Christ's baptism where he declared, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And he says something almost identical, but then he adds a little phrase to it, doesn't he? Listen to him. It's not just that he's saying, Peter, be quiet. He's actually highlighting the fact that this is the great prophet. 
And it's no, it's no coincidence that right after this, Moses and Elijah are gone and Christ alone remains. Because he is God's final prophet. He is God's final word of revelation. Now, long before this moment, Moses had directed the attention of God's people to someone greater than he. In Deuteronomy 18, 15, he said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And if you remember the account of Elijah when he was positioned by God to have a great spiritual battle with the prophets of Baal, it's recorded in 1 Kings 17, 18, and then even into 19 where Elijah ends up on Mount Sinai, a a weary and in many ways broken man. But in that moment of prophetic ministry where he had challenged the prophets of Baal, set up an altar, call upon your God. If he's real, let him show up and prove it. And the 450 prophets of Baal, they danced around the altar and they cried to God all day and they cut themselves, or to their God, I should say, and and cut themselves, did all kinds of things to invoke a manifestation of their God. Elijah stands over there and actually mocks them at certain points. It's quite humorous if you read through that passage. I mean, he even suggests at one point that maybe Baal has stepped out to relieve himself. Look at the text. But then in that great moment, there's a very simple and direct prayer where, God, where Elijah says, God, show yourself. And he does. Fire falls. And it consumes the entire sacrifice that Elijah has built with the assistance of some others. And the people know that Elijah's God is God. And they cry, the Lord, he is God. So even Elijah's prophetic ministry pointed people to the true God. And you know, the God who sent fire from heaven and consumed those sacrifices is the God who has come to dwell, the God who stands on this mount of transfiguration. Throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus has implored his hearers, us, to listen to his message. And now the Father affirms that the words of this, his holy son, his one-of-a-kind son, must be the priority audio. Listen to him. That's why Peter wrote in his second letter, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Listen to him. Now, I told you there are just four uses of this particular transfiguration term in the New Testament. We already looked at one from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Here's the second one. In Romans 12, Paul continues this this letter. He's just come through all of that great doctrine that explains to us who Jesus is and why his death on the cross and why his life of obedience and the righteousness uh, that, that God gives to us is essential to who we are. And now he says, and, and all of those he, he summarizes by saying, these are the mercies of God. In verse one, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now here it comes. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed or transfigured by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, we don't have time to dig into Romans, but Paul is bringing us to that same point that Peter is, 
and, and the way that our minds are renewed are by submitting our minds and our hearts and our souls to this word. How many voices there are in our world today that compete, not just for our mental attention, but for the affection of our souls. There's the audio of politics and the economy and social media and social justice and the causes of world peace and climate change. You know, we, I, I was thinking just this morning, it, because we have, we have pushed God to the margin and because we've said no to Jesus Christ, we've actually created, the human race has created its own echo chamber. Do you know what an echo chamber is? We're cautioned against that culturally, and it's actually wise. It's as if you get in a room that's all closed up, and, and it's either just you in there talking and, and listening, or there's a group of people just like you, and so you never step outside of the echo chamber to realize there's actually a really big world, and there are not only other opinions and ideas, but there may be some wisdom out there aside from what's in this room. But the... The, the culture of humanity right now is kind of in its own echo chamber and, and God keeps trying to speak into that thing to say, hey, you people are lost. You don't have wisdom in and of yourself. You don't have solutions for your culture, for your economy, for your politics, for social justice. If you would listen to my son, Jesus Christ, you might actually find your way out of this labyrinth. And even followers of Jesus get sucked into that. So I know that there are many voices competing for your eardrum space, which is a gateway ultimately to your heart. Do you listen to Jesus? Are you listening to him? See, when we see him as he is, there's transfiguration that begins to happen. And when we hear him as he speaks, there's also transfiguration that happens. I want you to think with me for just a moment about Christ's call. Because he has said, deny yourself. And the world around us says what? Guard yourself, care for yourself, provide for yourself. Make yourself happy. Make yourself comfortable. Self-actualization. All kinds of self-terms, self-philosophies. Jesus actually says, I, I'm calling you to renounce yourself. Take up your cross. Join me in a death march. Follow me. And that's not what the world is saying. And you remember the end of chapter 8, just to review a little bit of last week? Jesus also said, if you try to save your life, you will end up losing it. But if you lose your life for my sake and the gospel, you will find it, save it. It may be counterintuitive, but that's gospel truth. And I want you to think for just a moment Day by day, you, one of your first waking thoughts was, Lord, show me your glory. What would be the effect? Let's just start with you personally. 
Well, you would begin to experience the transfiguration that 2 Corinthians 3.16 talks about, especially if you began each day just taking a portion of that, that early quiet time before your mind is filled with all those other voices, and you open God's Word, and you prayerfully and by faith say, Lord, show me your glory, and you just began to read. And let's say that today your reading included something like Psalm 104, a passage we just read, and you'd realize this God clothes himself in glorious light. And, and then your imagination just got fueled a little bit with, well, what does he look like? And you said, you know, we read another passage recently. I think that was Revelation 1. And then you flipped over there and you're like, that's right. Matt read that before we took that offering. I got to remember to take offering next week, by the way. See, that's how my mind starts going through all these things. But then you read and you say, what? a long robe and, and feet like burnished brass or bronze. And you're like burnished. I think that means polished to a high shine. And, and your heart and mind are beholding the truths and realities of Jesus. You know, that's, gonna, that's not only going to set your day on a, li- a little different trajectory than if your first thought is, well, let's see what you know, CNN or Fox News says. And then let's say that you take 15, 20, 30 minutes a day for every day of this coming year, and that's, that's where you have parked your soul. You are seeing Jesus as he is, and you are hearing him as he truly speaks. You're going to be a different person 365 days out. You may not be like totally different, but you will be different. And what if year by year, some of you are very young, What if year by year for the next 60 years of your existence, you're doing this every day, opening God's word and just humbly praying, Lord Jesus, show me your glory, show me your glory, show me your glory. I'll guarantee you that after 50 or 60 years of seeing Jesus as he is and hearing him as he speaks, you will be a totally different person. Probably really close to being prepared to enter heaven. Because he will have been transfiguring you. He will be putting to death all of that selfishness and self-centeredness that just drives you to do and think and say all that stuff right now. And he's going to alter your thoughts and alter your conversation and alter your living. And you will look back over a lifetime and say, you know what? It didn't happen in a moment like it happened for Jesus as he was, he was unveiled on the Mount of Transfiguration, but I'm a different person now. And let's say that people in a marriage are doing that, or parents and children are doing that, or siblings are doing that. But just begin to think of the relationships right around you. What if everybody in your house or your apartment or your youth group is doing that? You think that's going to have bearing on your relationships? It's huge. And then I think about potential for a little church like this, Gospel Hope. And so I'm using the word corporately, just referring to the body of believers who are here. I don't, I don't mean like corporate America, you know, Fortune 500 companies. I just mean corporately, because we are a church. People called by Jesus to come together in his name, to worship, to serve, to grow, to fellowship, to do evangelism. We're, a whole lot of things going on. But what if all of us were committed in the same way, just opening the word, and, and daily we're asking it, as we individually come before God, but then even as a body of believers, there's just the spirit here of like, you know what, we're all just saying, Lord, show us your glory. 
So whether it actually be a prayer that's offered in one of our prayer times or the community group or we weave this into a worship service as we did in essence uh, today, but what would be the effect of, of just being united in this prayer and this desire? People will come and say, you know what, there's something, something supernatural going on in that place. And that's the purpose that God has for us. Is that you? In one sense, there are no tricks. You don't have to have special training, special degrees. It starts really with just a humble, childlike faith. It says, you know what? I need to know Jesus. I need to see him as he is, and I need to hear him as he speaks. And this is where it is. Just a couple other thoughts to make this really practical for you. Do you know that the average person can read from Genesis to Revelation in about 70 hours? I did a little math this morning, and I thought, and I, some of you can check me, make sure I'm correct. But if you just read 15 minutes a day, every day, you'd read the entire Bible in about a year. And there are some great tools. If you're not familiar with Version, Y-O-U-V-E-R-S-I-O-N, uh, the website, which Bible.com gets you to the same place. Um, they have all kinds of uh, English translations, and the, many of them have audio with them. And I really do enjoy reading the Bible and hearing someone else read it at the same time. That's very helpful. But you could, if you just read 15 minutes a day, you'd get through the whole Bible in a year. If you, if you traded out one hour of your normal television watching, and let's be honest, most of us watch at least that much every day, Right? And some watch more. But if you just said, I'm going to read God's word for one hour a day, you would actually come close to reading through the Bible five times in one year. And if you're reading with that sweet, prayerful thought, Lord Jesus, show me your glory, there'd be big change. Big change. So I'm glad you're here. This is one of the means that God uses, Sunday worship. But you know, there are other parts of this too that you need to embrace and begin to practice in order that you might know Jesus as he is. Let's pray together. Father, as we hear this word this morning, we are mindful of the fact that there are so many competing voices. Some of them are actually religions and worldviews that would lead us in a different direction from the Christ. Some of them are just our own imaginations that have taken hold and we think we know more than others might or have a little deeper spirituality about us. But at this moment, Father, we renounce all of those competing voices, those competing visions, and we humbly ask, Lord Jesus, show us your glory. By faith, we glimpse it with Mark and Peter. 
by faith in the course of the service. We've glimpsed it with the psalmist and with the Apostle John. But we want these very words, holy words, Holy Spirit-inspired words to take root in our souls and create such a, a vision of Christ as He is that we gladly, eagerly deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow Him all the way to prison, to death, to the forfeiting of successful business here in this life. We, oh Lord God, we cannot save our lives. We believe what Jesus said. But to truly find our lives, we give them up today. We follow Jesus. I want you to continue in prayer for just a moment. I'll just give you a few more moments of, of silence. Just think through this text. Keep your Bible open. Stare at those words. Ask the Spirit of God to, to direct you. What's the next step you need to take? Is there sin that needs to be confessed to him? Is there self-centered ambition or living that needs to be renounced? Give it up. Do you need to, for the first time in your life, say, Lord Jesus, I am committing myself to following you? Or maybe you need to just say it again. Because while the recent days may have been good, today you kind of woke up and felt like, you know what, I'm serving self. Oh, renounce it and commit yourself to following him. Let's pray quietly for just another moment or two. Now, Lord Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, plant your word deep in our souls. Cause it to take root and to bear healthy, beautiful fruit. These things we pray in your most holy name. Amen.